The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome, one and all. Glad that you're here tonight. All right, Isaiah and the second chapter. We've been reading through the Scriptures together. We come to Isaiah last time, and I mentioned some comments there about how this book is not as well known in our minds as it should be. So let's pay good attention to this. Some of this is maybe uh, maybe it's your first time. Maybe it's uh, you've read it dozens of times, but it's nonetheless uh, encouraging and uh, maybe amazing uh, what God will do and what He promises to do. Chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This is to be fulfilled yet in the future, okay? It's not happened yet, but it shall. This is not a, this is not a fanciful word picture that means something other than what it says. It means exactly what it says. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Pause for one second. I'm glad to hear that. I hope you are as well. The loftiness, the haughtiness, the pride, the arrogance of man will be brought low. But the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. What passage of Scripture does that remind you of? Anybody? 
the one we just read. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. Book of Revelation, that's right. They call out to the rocks, cover us. They flee to the mountains. They refuse, however, to repent of their wicked deeds. And thus the judgment of God will pour out upon the earth. Verse 20 says, In that day man will, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. There it is, a repeated refrain there. Verse 22, finally, Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? A mere man, a mere mortal, with nothing to do with our God, sadly. Amen. All right, that brings us to the end of our reading for tonight in Isaiah. And we're going to turn our attention to the subject matter that I brought to us uh, starting back about a week and a half ago maybe, uh, speaking about the doctrine of self-deception, the teaching of the Christian Bible on the doctrine of self-deception. Maybe it sounds weird to put it that way, but there is, there is a teaching in the Scriptures about this, and so I want to share that with you. Um, I shared a couple of quotes about self-deception before. I'll share a couple more um, here this evening just to kind of help you with it. A uh, fellow named uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this, No one enjoys being cross-examined or accused of having something wrong in their lives. But as we grow as Christians, we come to the painful recognition that we have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. We slowly learn that we need to be stopped in our tracks by God. He uses Scripture to do this. We cannot reach our destination if we are traveling in the wrong direction. A uh, almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. You ever think about that in yourself? That's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true nonetheless. A fellow named Joseph Butler preached a number of sermons at a chapel where he was a minister in 1827, and he preached an entire sermon upon self-deceit, and he used this text. And Nathan said to David, "Thou art the man." upon self-deceit. And so he writes, and I haven't finished reading this whole thing. It's, it's, uh, it's about twice the length of a normal sermon that I would preach. But he says, interestingly, in a few little snippets here, there is not anything relating to men and characters more surprising and unaccountable than this, partiality to themselves, which is observable in many. Then he says, there is plainly, in the generality of mankind, an absence of doubt or distrust, in a great measure, as to their moral character and behavior. Do you have that absence of doubt or distrust in your moral character or behavior? Do you have, or do you have doubt or distrust in your moral character or behavior? Okay. What he's saying is, when you look at mankind, there just is missing this kind of self-doubt People very, you know, conveniently think of themselves to be better than they are. Notice uh, this quote also. He says, Though a man has the best eyes in the world, he cannot see any way but that which he turns those eyes. 
if he never turns those eyes toward himself to look at his own case, he will always see the flaws in other people or the things of others, but he won't ever consider the things of himself. That's where self-deception comes in. And then he says this, last one, vice in general consists in having an unreasonable and too great regard to ourselves in comparison with others. Too great of a regard of ourselves in comparison with others. That is, that's really getting to the very essence of, of what sin is. Selfishness, pride. Too great of a regard of ourselves as opposed to others. Um, he illustrates in, in the sermon how you might have a very good and close friend who could who could take advantage of the trust that he has that you have in him to work some mischief on you okay can you imagine that you you, you trusted this person i mean you've been friends for decades and they they could take advantage of that trust and uh you wouldn't think anything of it and yet they could do something in a, in a and just thinking in a kind of a fun way somebody might you know, get you to go along with something and uh, to go to some place with them or something, and, and then you realize once you enter into the door that you know it's a surprise, you know, birthday party or something, and they deceived you the whole way to get you to go there because they knew you wouldn't go willingly by yourself or whatever. That'd be a, a nice example, but the idea of a friend being able to 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 use to use you or to do something because you have that trust in them. Then he, the author here in this sermon illustrates, use that to illustrate this idea. So it is with ourselves. We are our very own best friends. We trust ourselves. And so we can lead ourselves into all kinds of mischief. Does that make sense? It's kind of a strange thought. Think of it from external, the person. Yeah, and then you think of, okay, if, if your best friend can do that to you, because of the closeness of them to you, how about yourself to yourself? You're close to yourself and you can do that kind of thing uh, to yourself. It's a very interesting idea. So we're looking at this notion of self-deception. It's a very um, troublesome idea in a way. It's hard to explain. Uh, We said that self-deception means that you believe X, whatever X is, but then you've convinced yourself, persuaded yourself, rationalized, that you believe the opposite of that. The classic example in Christian theology is that all men know God, but they don't know Him, or they profess to not know Him. And so we spent quite some time on that in our second message on this subject. Now in our third message. And so we begin there for this evening. We looked at a number of texts last time, and we'll continue to do that. Turn your Bible to Galatians 6, 7. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 7. I won't spend a ton of time on these texts. I know our brother Jansen will be going over them uh, sooner rather than later here. But since it touches our topic, I have to address it here. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
And so we see a similar truth to what we saw before. Remember we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, evil company corrupts good manners. Don't be deceived about that. Don't be deceived that people that live in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Uh, and also other passages, Galatians 5, 19 says the same. You know, don't be deceived about these things. But six, uh, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, the idea is, look, <clears throat> if you think you can sow to the flesh, that means live for sinful pleasure and get no return out of that, like you're going to somehow escape the consequences of that, you're deceived. You're deceived. Uh, rather, you will reap what you sow, Paul says. Do not be mistaken. Do not be self-deceived about this. If you are, you're going to come to the end of your life and have a very shocking result at that judgment when you thought you could live this way and then God would just overlook all of it and you didn't have anything to do with God your whole life because you were believing in other than the truth of God. But in another sense... Because you've been self-deceived about that, it might, be, it might seem to be a shocking judgment, but on the other sense, when you get there, in your heart of hearts, you're going to know. I knew. I knew. Yeah, what, did you, what, what was that? The jig is up. I mean, it's, it's, it's over. Game over. You're finished. I knew. I knew that God existed. I knew that doing that was wrong. Romans 1 says as much. The people that live for the flesh today and applaud those who do so and preach that we should accept and not only accept but bow to their demands, they will realize in horror that they have been self-deceived. But that self-deception will very quickly, it's, it's kind of like a, a thin layer that will just melt away under the uh, holy, fiery judgment of our God. It will just melt away. So, um, you know, just like an, a criminal who was initially shocked that he's caught after what he thought was the perfect crime. You've probably seen some of those crime-solving shows, you know, the detective shows, and the person gets, gets caught. I, I remember watching a very riveting documentary, for me it was anyway, of the lives and, and almost conditions, but almost the psychology of being on death row. I think it was in the state of Indiana and how they interviewed a number of these prisoners who did very heinous crimes. And they've been on death row for 10, 15, 20 years there. Some of them are, you know, at, they're in the last cell before they go to the next one, which is their end. And it's interesting to see how their thinking has changed by sitting there and thinking about what they have done the awful crimes that they committed to get themselves in that place. And uh, I remember a couple of young men who were getting into their middle age uh, admitting, you know, we, we did terrible things. We were wrong. They were self-deceived in those earlier years and they were very upset, in fact, even lying about their crime, but now they're openly admitting it. They know what they've done and they're facing judgment. There's a there's a way in which facing judgment for your sin clarifies your thinking so that the self-deception can kind of go away. That's what they were experiencing. So, that's Galatians 6. Now, James chapter 1 is another example. James chapter 1, verse 16. 
this passage I hope you're familiar with. It talks about the process of how temptation becomes sin in the life of the believer, really in the life of anybody, but certainly of interest to us as Christians how this works. And it talks about temptation by our own desires. We're enticed. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And then he says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What does he mean by that? Well, he's, he, I think it harkens back to verse 13, which says, look, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. You know, God's given me this terrible, this terrible solicitation to do evil and it's all God's fault. And, and uh, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Sin and temptation doesn't come from God above. Good gifts come from God above. So don't be deceived about that. And that level of realism, that level of biblical knowledge will carry you through life so that you won't be going around blaming the you know, outsiders, blaming others for your problems and your falling into sin. It falls on your shoulders, not on God's or not on, on everybody else. Finally, in our review of texts to talk about deception, let's go to 1 John. Just a few pages forward in your Bible, or toward the end, I should say, of your Bible. 1 John 1 8. You know, there's almost nowhere you can go in the Bible where you're not going to quickly run into some critical key concept that you need to have filed away in your mind. And here's another one. In 1 John 1 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me uh, give you guys a minute to get there. 1 John 1.8. The next verse is also very good as well. 1 John. So James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1 John 1.8. Let me read it again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, you might be sitting here tonight and say, who could ever think that they don't have sin? Oh, my friends, there are a ton of people out there that think they don't have sin. I mean, that's, a, that's an issue to get some people to recognize that they're sinners. No, I'm a pretty good person. I make a few mistakes, but... Or um, even Christians. Some have adopted this form of doctrine called Christian perfectionism, in which they get to a certain point in their Christian life and they now commit no known sins, they say. Yeah, which is itself a sin to even think that because that's what this is saying. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does that mean that the truth is not in us? It means that you're a liar. Like verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's either you're a liar or God's a liar. Now, uh, let's put that on a multiple choice test, okay? Uh, a, I'm a liar, or B, God is a liar. Okay, It's going to be A every time. I am the liar, not God. Let God be true, and every man a liar, the Bible tells us. And so, if you deny the doctrine of human depravity, deny the doctrine of sin, deny that we practice sin, that we have a sin nature, that we are imputed the guilt of Adam, if you say you have none of that, you're deceiving yourself. And... You're gonna if you do that persistently, you're gonna die in your sins, and that's a bad, 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 bad deal there. So don't deceive 
yourself. The fact is that we know that we do have sin, but some of us humans turn around and outright deny that by saying we do not have sin. The truth is not in those who do so. So this is a self-deception. And we could say self-deception then is the absence of truth in us. Right? The absence of truth. Or it's the suppression of truth in unrighteousness is how Romans 1 says it. So that it's kind of there, kind of say, you know, cram-packed in the very back of your mind, but it's so coated over and crusted over with all kinds of other rationales and... and uh, rationalizations and thoughts and excuses that you know it's it's basically not there for all practical purposes and you live as if it's not it's like the fool has said in his heart there is no god the, the fool has no thought of god he he lives as if god's irrelevant doesn't exist but he's self-deceived about that so still we looked at all these texts of Scripture and we know that we can be deceived. We know that self-deception is a reality, but yet explaining that, that's what really led me on this journey to, to this topic and trying to think about it some more with you. Explaining it is still somewhat mysterious. How can a person know God, but yet at the same time not know Him? Now, for me, part of the resolution comes immediately from how the word know is used. When, it's, when we say that every person knows God, they know God in, in, in this way. They have a sense of deity. Okay? They generically know that God is eternal and that He is deity. Okay? Look at that. In, if you're not convinced of that, look in Romans chapter 1 where it tells us that very specifically. In Romans 1, it says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. This is by every human being. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. So He's eternally powerful, He's omnipotent, and He's deity, He's God. That's what this means. I mean, who can look at the vastness of the creation and the microscopic complexity of it and say, no, it's all natural, it's all Big Bang, it's all evolution, it's all time, chance, and random mutations. That's what evolution is. Time, chance, and random mutations. God has become for them time and chance and random mutations put together in some kind of conglomeration. But people all know this. They all know, they look and say, it's obvious. I mean, there has to be a Creator God. We didn't come out of nothing. Where is the universe anyway? How does it hang in, in, on nothing? What is outside of the boundaries of the universe? Well, God is out there. God's in here too. But we know that. We have a sense of deity. Each and every person has this sense. And because of this, people are without what? Excuse, the Bible says. People don't have to hear the Gospel to be justly condemned in their sin. They knew. They know. Self-deception will melt away and they will realize in their, in their open consciousness, yes, I, I knew God. I knew, but I didn't seek Him. I didn't honor Him. I didn't worship Him. I didn't please Him. And so they will be without excuse. So that's the one side of the word know is they have a sense of deity. But the other side of the word know is, do you know God? Like, do you have a personal relationship with Him? Do you... 
Do you know God uh, in in a in a in way in a way in which you basically acknowledge Him? You know, in which you acknowledge Him as who He is, as God, savingly so. That's the other sense of the word no. So yes, people do know God, and and yet they do not know God. They've convinced themselves that He doesn't exist. Tonight then, for the rest of our time, I think, uh, we'll look at the origins of self-deception. We've kind of seen that the Bible tells us that it's a reality. We understand that it's a reality too. I mean, we talk about this language of self-deception, somebody deceiving themselves, somebody tricking themselves, lying to themselves. We know that idea is a real idea. We know the Scripture uses that idea, so it's a real thing. Uh, We've seen examples of that. But we're trying to understand a little bit more about the origins and the explanation of this idea of self-deception. So, where does it come from? Well, obviously, one's own self, the main source or channel or agent of self-deception, but there are some inputs into yourself, as it were, that can help us understand this. I was in Romans 1. I'm going to turn to Romans 7. Romans 7. Paul still... In his believing life, engaging in a battle against sin, full disclosure, there are different theologians take this chapter differently. Some suggest that it's Paul's struggle before he's saved. Others talk about uh, some, how he was related to the law. Uh, I believe that this is talking about his, his ongoing difficulty with sin as a believer in the Lord and uh, I, I don't want, you know, th- this passage does comfort and help us who are in that, engaged in that same battle. I don't want to make comfort and encouragement be the, uh, the basis of proper exegesis of the text, you understand. But I think it is Paul saying that I have this, this difficulty. And we recognize something of this in our own lives. Uh, he says, you know, the sin producing all manner of evil desire. Um, you know, apart from the law, certainly before he was saved, sin didn't have any kind of impact on him. But when when he realized what the divine law of God was, he just he he he, he, he re, sin revived and he died. They went in opposite directions. And the commandment, verse ten says, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Here it is: for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Sin deceived Paul by taking the advantage afforded by the opportunity of the law and it killed him. He was unable to keep the law because of indwelling sin, but sin had deceived him. So sin is almost pictured as an agent here. Don't, don't think of it like a, you know, a little boogeyman that lives inside of you because it's different than that. It, it's, a, it's part of our tendency. It's part of our own nature. But if you kind of step back and look at it from a distance, you can kind of say that, that sin part of me was, was doing that. Sin deceived me. That reality is clear from Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's a key verse that you should have memorized. Know that concept, your own heart. Don't follow your heart as the world says. That's a bunch of foolishness. <clears throat> Yet, as, as clear as it is taught in the Bible about sin being deceptive, people do not realize that sin has this deceptive quality about it. Um, 
you know, only maybe later on after you've fallen into some problem do you realize, oh, I should have, I should have been a little more alert to that reality of sin. And so we're warning you and ourselves that we must fight sin with every ounce of spiritual strength and attention that we can muster by the Spirit of God. As long as, as much as God can help us so that we do not be deceived, we need to do that to work hard, to work hard against sin. Sin masks its own presence and becomes like an agent separate from the person, but it in fact is not separate. We could say sin, as I've said before, has an invisibility cloak and uh, it hides itself. Sin uses the person as an agent and for the believer almost creates a double personality. You've seen that in, in Paul. In Galatians you see it in 2.20 in a sense, but you also see in, in chapter 7 here, I am not doing the things that I want to do. Why can't I do the things that I want to do? He's, he's got a battle raging. I don't want to say that he's clinically schizophrenic, but you have that idea in a sense, right? You kind of dual personality. You know, my sin nature wants this so much, but I in myself, in the in the spirit of God's work in my heart and the new nature that God has given me, don't want that thing. And so you get into this battle. Sin versus yourself. So this resolves somewhat the paradox of how a person can know something and yet convince themselves that they do not know it. So remember we used the illustration, I think two messages ago, about a person A deceiving a person B. But self-deception is a person A deceiving person A. Not a separate person involved. Um, A knows the fact or the belief or whatever and yet he convinces himself that he does not know it. He knows it, but he convinces himself that he does not know it. So it is not that person A deceives himself without the influence of any other factors. It is that he's influenced by sin. So, this helps us to grasp what's the origin of self-deception? Where does it come from? Because if it was just the person without any sin, without any kind of external factors or any kind of natural uh, proclivities or, uh, can I say this way, spiritual birth defects, if we were born without any spiritual birth defects, meaning without sin, then we wouldn't have this problem with self-deception. That's right. So this points out the fact that in terms of belief in God, self-deception can mean that a person denies the existence of God. They believe God exists and is eternally powerful, but they convince themselves that God is not. He does not exist. On the other hand, the deception need not be so strong. It can be, you know, I believe God exists and is eternal, eternally powerful, but I persuade myself that I don't believe it. What belief I put in place of it may be, in fact, nothing. So, self-deception can be on two levels. It can say, even though I know God exists, I believe that He does not. That's called... Atheism. 
Or, I know that God exists, but I convince myself that I'm not sure of that. And so then I'm an agnostic. Okay, so there's a couple different variations of this. There are no true philosophical atheists but, or, or agnostics, but there are people that certainly think themselves to be that. So that's, uh, that's the tough thing that we run up against. Witnessing, for example. So uh, atheism or agnosticism, but both are self-deceived. Now, we must put aside the notion also that because of sin here in the mix, that the, self, that the deceived person is always an innocent party. The deceived person is not always an innocent party. Whether somebody, if somebody's deceiving themselves, they're not innocent because it's all wrapped up in themselves. Even if somebody outside of me deceives me, that doesn't absolve me from all guilt necessarily, depending on the circumstances. I could be complicit in the deception somehow. Um, you know, just go ahead and uh, just go ahead and put this on the paperwork. Don't worry about it. Just just put this on. And the person's like, okay, I'll just do that. And they, and they kind of just shuffle it away into the back part of their mind, even though if it's a lie that they're putting on this official piece of paperwork. Um, or you know, just change the date on that because that's really what the person intended. You know, that's what it should have been. So let's just change the date on that, and and that's a lie. They're deceiving themselves and or, or allowing the person outside of them to bring a deception into them and then they're kind of deceiving themselves as well. So self-deception, rather others' deception, I should say, does not leave us without guilt necessarily. Now, I'm not saying that in every case. I mean, uh, somebody in your life, say that friend that you trusted could have worked a mischief on you having fallen into sin themselves and and you were totally innocent about what was going on. But sometimes that's just not the case. We're not excluded from guilt. The deception may be a comfortable thing, a comfortable thought in which I wish to live, a sinful state of enjoyment either physically or mentally, and thus I become guilty in accepting a deception that has been wrought on me in the beginning from the outside, but because of sin. So sin is a origin of self-deception. That's our main battle. Okay, I spent the most of our time there because that is the main issue. Now, <clears throat> let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Sin, then, the first of our origins of deception, but there's another one. And this one gets too much press, too much credit sometimes, but it is a true source of deception. And that is in 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 3. Paul is afraid for the Corinthian church. They have so many troubles and they seem to be doctrinally going astray. And he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So he says, somebody is you know, claiming to come to you and preach another gospel and you are accepting that 
as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, Satan is the source of is a source of deception. There can be no doubt that he is. He lives for lying. He's the father of lies. His future servant, the Antichrist, I'll mention just in a moment, has the same exact character. Let me see if I can... Uh, you don't have to turn here. I'm going to look at Second John 1.7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist, but there's also the Antichrist. We'll get to him in just a minute. But you see how Satan deceived, can deceive people. He deceived Eve, tried to deceive Jesus, tries to deceive humans, other humans sometimes. There's another text connected to this idea. I have listed in my notes, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I suppose in our age you could read that and say, boy, that's a little harsh on the woman. It's actually more harsh on the man. He had no external deception to blame or trick him. He he just knew what he was doing was wrong. At least Eve had the somewhat excuse that she was under the deceptive power of the devil, of the serpent in the garden. But she that doesn't excuse her. She she's she is culpable for that, and the man likewise culpable for his undeceived choosing clearly to sin. All right. Now see if you can navigate your way back to Second Thessalonians. That little guy injure himself? Oh dear. Bashed his little tooth or something. Okay. Well, we'll have to pray pray for little Ian that way. Alright, so um Second Thessalonians two, eight. Remember that I'm sorry, I'm in Second Timothy. I need to get to Second Thessalonians here. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So he's going to work some kind of miracles that are going to convince people to follow him. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Might be saved. The deception surrounding the work of the Antichrist. This is yet another example of deception that originates outside of a person. There's the devil, there's the Antichrist, there's, of course, sin working inside. Uh, but the devil or the Antichrist will work inside of these people because they do not have the love of the truth built into them, nor do they have the Holy Spirit to inoculate them from deception. This is uh, the Antichrist. Now, the prototype of the Antichrist also did deceitful work, lied to the Jewish people. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, is the title officially. Daniel 8.25 talks about that. You don't have to turn there, but that's a reference you could look at. This is what evil people do all the time. And so there are many Antichrists 
plural, but there's one capital A Antichrist that will come in the last time before the coming of Christ to the earth. Um, what else can deceive us? What else can deceive us? Well, uh, common phrase these uh, last few years, fake news can deceive us. It's an external thing that can come from outside sources. And it could be called plain old deception, but here's the problem. The problem is when we gullibly receive that false information source, we become somewhat culpable of embracing willingly, uncritically, blindly those things that are fed from the outside into our matrix of self-deception inside of our own minds and hearts. Okay, False information from outside sources. Antichrist, Satan, and sin. All causes of deception. The Bible warns us to not be deceived by anyone. I'm in 2 Thessalonians. There, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you by any means. Whatever means they might try to use on you, don't be deceived, whether it's sin or Satan or the Antichrist or false information. Don't be deceived by any means. In this particular context, the Apostle Paul was dealing with what seems like was a letter that had been sent to the Thessalonian church, not from Paul, but was a deceptive letter, trying to get them to believe a false teaching. And he says, don't be deceived. What I've told you stands. Okay? Don't, you know... When you know the truth, you don't have to worry about the fake stuff that comes along. Some people get worked up about all these, these things. I see sometimes people, they get an email from, from somebody. And since I've been you know, a user of email for 30 years, I've probably seen most scams that there are out there. Uh, some of my email addresses are very old and they're on every spam list that you can imagine. And you just don't have to worry about these things. You know, they come and they claim that, oh, your password's going to be, or we need your new account information, or, or, or all that stuff, or whatever. And, you know, the, uh, the, the perennial Nigeria scam, I call it, because it's somebody there who needs to deposit a bunch of money into a bank account and <laughs> all that stuff. And I've always kind of wanted to, you know, chase one of those things down and find out the person and actually get them in trouble, but I just delete. Delete, delete, you know. It's not worth the time. Uh, but some people are, are, are concerned about those sorts of things. Or you have to update your computer with this now. I'm like, no, did you ask for that? You didn't ask for that, so don't worry about it. Same principle I use when somebody comes knocking at the door trying to sell me something. I never buy something from somebody on my front porch. Not a good idea, okay? Just a principle. File it away and use it sometime you will be glad that you did. So just because it comes to you, this, this information, doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Don't be deceived by any means. Romans 16.8 says that divisive people deceive the hearts of those who are not true critical thinkers. Romans 16.8, uh, sorry, 16.18 I should say. For those who are such... Divisive ones do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, 
deceive the hearts of the simple. So divisive people who also we could throw under the heading of false teachers. Get people who are gullible, simple or naive and trick them into joining their and becoming a part of their following. So the number of sources of stuff that can feed into our deception and self-deception. Then we have what's called, what I call in my notes, and I don't, I don't know if this term exists somewhere else, but I called it peer group self-reinforcement. Peer group self-reinforcement. This is also called by the more common name, echo chamber. Okay? Group think. I'm always, I hope that you will be like this as well. I'm always suspicious of a large body of people thinking the same exact thing. Um, I don't know how in tune you are with the way news is done these days, but it is scary. I saw a mashup of a number of news channels, local news channels, uh, like 16 of them, that were doing a um, kind of an opinion section of the news and how our democracy is being torn up and voting and all this sort of stuff. It was all from a far left-wing perspective. Every one of them throughout the United States, different locations, not, not like one outfit all saying verbally identical things. They had been given a script from somewhere. It's obvious. We, 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 look, we turn on you know, channel 427, whatever, here, and we look at it and say, oh, wow, that, that's nice. They really work to produce you know, all their news and they work to produce that opinion piece and all that stuff. No, they didn't. Unfortunately, somebody emailed that to them and said, here's your script for the day. And this is what you're supposed to talk about. And this is peer group self-reinforcement, echo chamber, group think, conformity to this. We need to be wise to that stuff, friends. We cannot be fools. I speak to us all and to all of us out there on the, on the computer. Don't think this stuff doesn't happen. It's all the time. You, you get news people who use verbally identical sentences and paragraphs it cannot be uh, innocently uh, or accidentally put together like that. It's impossible. Somebody's pulling the strings on the puppets and the puppets are doing the talking to make it look real and organic, but it's not real and organic. It's groupthink. The people at the top of some organization or some movement trying to get their, their ideas out having a very a huge impact. The corporate aspect of self-deception. People get together and talk about and do the same kinds of sinful things together. They're drawn together by the common cord of their sin. And if somebody like you or me happens to enter into their, quote, fellowship and we talk to them sense from God's Word, it just jars them so they can't take it. And they glom together in opposition to an opposing teaching so that they don't have to deal with it. It's inconvenient for them to have to come out of their echo chamber in which they've been happily existing, even though it's 
false. Related to this is an idea that uh, I found in my research on this called false consciousness. Have you ever heard of that phrase, false consciousness? It's a phrase that evidently arose from Karl Marx. He called it the collective illusion. Um, I wouldn't normally recommend using anything from Marx, obviously, but he uses this in service of his push toward communism. In his mind, he's saying the lower class, the working class, has a false belief, a false consciousness that they propagate or they promote among themselves that is wrong because they're thinking they're going to that they're going to be benefited by by working in the capitalist system, but in fact, they're, they're, it's a false consciousness because they are um, deceived, and they shouldn't be thinking that they're going to to succeed in the capitalist system because it's impossible for them. They need to they need to change their thinking into a a, a communist kind of collective mentality. You see that collective mentality taking over all the time today. You hear commercials on the radio talking about not me but we you know that is collectivism that they're pushing Um, but the false consciousness idea is a useful concept in itself taken out from you know kind of borrowed from that context according to Greg Bonson a a reformed apologetics and uh, theologian who's now with the Lord he says this causes an entire social class to obscure the motives of its thought from itself. Under this cloud of thinking, the corporate group believes things that are contrary to their own best interests. That was pretty much what Marx was saying. But we see it in the, running in the other direction than Marx does in our own society. They may believe, for example, if we elect, if we just can elect this person to office, our problems will be solved. But if he secretly or not so secretly holds to a destructive and tyrannical philosophy of governance, the people who have that false consciousness will be harmed instead of prospered, even though they were deceived into thinking and their corporate group think that they would be helped. To the extent that they know this, but deny it, they are self-deceived. I wrote a number of examples, uh, and I'm going to be saved by the bell tonight. I wrote a number of examples of self-deception in in modern era that we could think about, and some of them would undoubtedly be very controversial. Maybe not among all of our number here, but uh, in a wider audience, they certainly would be controversial. But I'll give you a couple that might not be so the beginning of my list. And then when the, when the clock strikes 7.15, I'll stop before I get into too much trouble. One deception surrounds the tragic events of 9-11. These disasters, some allege, were manufactured in part by insiders in the U.S. government. You've heard this, haven't you? The 9-11 truth movement, some kind of cover-up. The movement cannot accept the easiest and most data-driven conclusion that Al-Qaeda operatives were responsible under Osama bin Laden for carrying out an attack on the United States. Certain data points do not seem to them to fit that fact pattern, 
And so they have looked elsewhere for an explanation. You know, one of the common ones that I ran into is uh, World Trade Center Building 7, I think it was, uh, very strangely kind of imploded as if there were, bomb, you know, uh, destructive devices planted inside it. And so that's, the, that's, what, that's one of their data points that they say, oh, it proves that you know, 9-11 was an inside job. So they, they look elsewhere. Facts that do not agree with their theory are rationalized or explained away. Now, to me, the motivation for this kind of thinking is not clear, although you might say this motivation is simply, you know, they want to get to the truth of the circumstance. Perhaps the motivation is simply to be contrarian or different than the mainstream because, as I said before, anytime there's a bunch of group think, it's very often the case that it's wrong. And you want to be, you know, on the outside of that, looking in and, and evaluating it carefully. Uh, they don't want to be gullible or, or, or you know, demonstrate that they uh, they can escape from groupthink. And there have been many such conspiracy theories where people are self-deceived, such as, uh, you know, how President John F. Kennedy was killed. There's all kinds of, you know, thoughts and things about that. Or that the United States really didn't put men on the moon. It was an elaborate hoax that uh, was filmed in Hollywood, so to speak, and they, they got us to think that you know people didn't really go to the moon. Self-deception. I'll give you a theological example. Actually, there are thousands of these probably, but any of the cults would be good, uh, good examples of self-deception of and self-deception. Take something that's convincingly stated by Jehovah's Witnesses. God never gives us things that we can't understand, they say. So the Trinity must be not true because it's too hard to understand. I've, I've literally heard JWs say this from 25 years ago. They have other reasons as well to deny the deity of Christ, but this is a philosophical reason. They confidently assert and elevate their intellect to be able to comprehend anything that might be or might be true, even the things of God. And so they've deceived themselves into thinking, if there's something too hard to figure out, it must be false. The reality is God is ultimately incomprehensible. If you, as a puny person, with your puny little brain, think that you can understand the infinite Almighty God, then you're deceived. You're self-deceived. And so, we'll leave it at that for tonight as far as examples go of this idea of deception. I think there's probably a little bit more here that I could do. I'll get myself into that trouble maybe next time. But uh, we'll leave it for now for tonight. All right. What I'm going to do is pray. I'm going to pray for uh, our young friend Ian who I think uh, fell and hurt himself a little bit. We'll go see how he is, and then we'll be dismissed for the night. Okay, happy to chat. Have some fellowship with one another. Don't feel like you have to hurry off. Uh, It's good for us to be together and strengthen one another and encourage one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not a light topic that we've touched tonight, but I think it's helpful for us to pause and to reflect on the idea of self-deception and ask ourselves, Is there any way in which I have been deceived by outside forces, by the news, by my own sin? 
by divisive people, by false teachers, by the philosophies of the world, by the oft-repeated maxims and aphorisms of a worldly system of philosophy that teaches evolution and feminism and anti-God philosophy. Have I, have I been deceived by any of that, Lord? If this message can help us to, to see some of that in our own hearts, it would, be, it would accomplish its goal. And I pray that You will work that in us by Your Spirit. We know that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, not the Spirit of deception. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit will work in us, each one. In Jesus' name, Amen.